Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends and how they define the world around us. Welcome to episode 77 here at the department. I'm sure that's someone's lucky number. Is it, is it yours, Kim's? I don't no. know. <laughs> anyway, this week we will be continuing our conversation about the recurring or perhaps timeless trend of shopping secondhand. When we began this journey into the past just a few weeks ago, I thought we could do it in two episodes, but wow. <laughs> Turns out I was really, really wrong. So this is actually turning into a three-episode mini-series. Bow, bow, bow. I mean, I think <laughs> I think that that's 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 probably um, a good move, especially since you know our viewership tends to be um, obsessive, oh. highly <laughs> <laughs> highly dedicated yeah. to secondhand fashion, and uh, and I think that all your findings are really fascinating, and we've gotten really great feedback from people um, that they also agree. So just keep going, Amanda. I feel like we we could pull out some more strings of this too. Oh, for sure. And you know what? I was talking to Justin about this in the car yesterday, we actually drove down to San Antonio to go thrifting, which was great, because then I had a captive audience to talk through my thoughts for the outline for this episode. <laughs> a captive audience in a car. Yeah, except he kept interrupting me, and I'd be like, wait a minute, I'm not done. Anyway, so uh, of course, Justin loved this topic as well. And I was telling him, I was like, you know, last week, I was on Instagram, like I always am, and someone shared a video in which she talked about how she had been into uh, secondhand, shopping secondhand vintage, long before it was cool, as long ago as 15 years ago. (laughs) And (laughs) I had wanted to go in there and be like, wait, are you like 80 years old? Because it's been really cool for a long time, but I didn't. And anyway, we were talking about how well, even Dustin was like, oh, so yeah, like what? Did that person not hear about how uh, secondhand adventures was popular in the 80s and 90s? And I was like, um, Dustin, I don't want to Amanda explain to you here, but actually it's been cool since like the 30s. Mm-hmm. And then I told him all about raccoon coats and stuff. So <laughs> anyway, so anyway, yeah. So in the part one, which was last week, we talked about the early days of thrift stores. Then we moved through the first 80-ish years of the last century. Interestingly enough, we could only get 20 years into today's episode, but I'm blaming the internet, mm-hmm. right? Um We saw secondhand shopping being adopted by the surrealists, college students, hippies, chic downtown it girls of the 50s, the queer community, and really just about anyone who has lived outside the mainstream. And in the 70s, we saw thrifting moving into the mainstream as more and more people struggled economically through years of high inflation and unemployment, a combination depressingly called stagflation. It's also like a hard word to say. I'm sure whoever created that thought they were really clever, but they could have done better. Like, I like stinkflation better, personally. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Stinkonomics. I don't know. Anyway, uh, department stores, which were the biggest retailers for most of the 20th century, found themselves creating entire departments of secondhand clothing, which is 
kind of wild too to just imagine going into like a Macy's and seeing like here's our secondhand section and meanwhile thrift stores which as a reminder are businesses fought to hold on to every last customer and grow their businesses by re-merchandising following the department store trends and revisiting the real estate strategy by moving stores to high traffic middle class areas and oh yeah tons of Americans cast off clothes were traveling the world as part of a massive global secondhand clothing industry. Kim, would you say that sums up everything we've discussed so far? Yes. I mean, yes, but you have to listen to that uh, episode if you haven't. Because <laughs> you do. there yeah. are some really amazing parts that she didn't even really touch on. Yeah, there's a lot. Basically, what we're saying is that the only way you were into secondhand before everyone else's... I would say you probably had to be born in like 1910, 1920. Mm, so mm-hmm. if you are, if you were into it that early, let us know. We want to hear what you're about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Also, we forgot there were raccoons. Can't forget yeah, raccoons. Of course, raccoons. Of course. Basically the, the patron saint of the department. Um, today, we're going to focus on what happened with the trend of secondhand shopping in the 80s and 90s. It's going to be very nostalgic for many of us mm-hmm. with lots of style icons and films that have inspired us. Over the years, it's going to be really fun. But before we jump into all of that, Kim has her regular spiel. Yep. I'm just going to say it quick. Follow, rate, and review. Um, It's just so important for you to interact with our podcasts on all the streaming platforms. Um, Also, just, you know, make sure to recommend the podcast if anyone's looking for a good listen um, to your friends and family. Um, And then, you know, follow us on Instagram at at underscore the underscore department. If you're looking for any show notes or any of these image references, you can find it on our website, thedepartment.world, which is also available through our Instagram profile. Um, But actually, first, Amanda, before you jump in, how did you first kind of get into uh, secondhand clothing like wh- where was your um where was your input there i bet it's very similar for you right it was like sassy magazine and like all of the like coolest musicians of the like the 90s were like loudly and proudly wearing secondhand clothing and, like thrifting and like sassy would have articles about thrifting and i was very lucky because where i lived in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Now, I was like not allowed to get my driver's license until I was 20, but my mom seemed to have no problem with me just taking buses all over the place by myself. <laughs> and so, so there safe. was so safe. I didn't there was one thrift store that I really liked to go to, which was a Salvation Army that was in an old grocery store, and that place was awesome and that one I had to have someone drive me to. But there was this other place in Harrisburg. It was called Reuben Brothers, and I had to take two buses to get there, which meant it, even though it was probably like 4 miles from our house, it took me like, you know, an hour and a half to get there. And it was a place that was basically like a rag yard but on a smaller scale where you would just go in there and they just had mountains of clothes that you would literally cr- climb through. It smelled weird and you paid by the pound and it was 25 cents a pound. Wow. All the clothes there were totally like from people probably who had passed away or moved into some sort of assisted living situation. So it was all it was all 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s and like I said, 25 cents a pound. Like I would throw things back. I think people are just people are just drooling right now. I mean, I am. <laughs> I know, I know. And I would go there and there would be like you would expect if you if an event like this happened right now, people would be in line all morning. They'd be setting up lawn chairs the yeah. night before to get in this line. You know, people would be like up to bad behavior in there. <laughs> It'd be like me and three mm. other people. You know, it was like dead quiet. <laughs> yeah. 
you know and it would just be like i was the only like teenager there but man i had like the best clothes and you know also i i definitely realized pretty early on in my life that i was never going to have the opportunity to buy in the trends into the trends that, like the popular kids at school were doing because my mom wasn't going to buy me like guess or a spree or whatever denim people are into at that point. She just we didn't have that kind of money and she thought it was stupid and she was definitely the kind of person who said it's school, not a fashion <laughs> show, which I'm sure many of you have heard, right? And I'd be like, "Well, it actually like, kind of beg to differ." I th- yeah, it's- I don't think any parents would say that today. No, I, I hope not. I mean, they clearly are not watching the right mm-hmm. shows on the CW or whatever. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I was like, this is a place where I can fully express myself and who I am and what I'm into and almost wear it as like a badge mm-hmm. for other people to recognize. And it's not, it's not, I can afford it, right? So it was like perfect for me. And I just leaned into it more and more, even though it wasn't the norm. And you know, I think it started like a way of life for me that I've never mm-hmm. looked back on. How about you? Well, actually, I was introduced, and this is going to be a really Midwestern thing to say, but <laughs> okay. um, I was introduced uh, through my youth group. It's like a, uh, 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 ah. yeah, like the church youth group. No uh, way. Yeah. I mean, I loved my youth group. We had an awesome youth group. I didn't, I was not particularly partial to the religious aspect of the youth group but i loved the people and uh-huh. that one of the counselors uh was this rad college girl and she was into all like the indie music we got introduced to tons of indie music but she also introduced us to um uh to secondhand shopping and we would shop at oftentimes a lot of the downtown um downtown madison of course um like thrift shops and kind of like cool punk shops um mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite one was juju and moxie and they sold um costume jewelry but also like a lot of like just really hip you know it was because it was really edited it was an edited selection you know mm-hmm. and it was still really affordable for you know a high schooler who worked at a bread bakery um <laughs> <laughs> that's where my money would go. But I would also go to like good we go to Goodwills and you know, cause she kinda mm-hmm. taught us how to how to dig through the clothes there and stuff like that. So um that's really how I was introduced to it. Yeah, I mean I just think it was like it was one of those it was kind of like a social thing in so many aspects. Mm-hmm. Like any totally. time I could in- introduce but, a friend. But yeah. you know, it's also, you know, um uh competitive like if you go with a friend it's like finding the coolest thing or you you don't want to actually go with a friend because they might find the thing that you want (laughs) i usually shopped alone (laughs) yeah me too unless i needed someone to drive me somewhere but i'll say like in harrisburg where i lived most of the thrift stores weren't really that great and so i really leaned on you know rubens to go get my 25 cents a pound clothes but in york where my grandma lived there was the the massive Salvation Army that I was referring to that was in an old grocery store, a wise market for any central Pennsylvania yours, yins listening to this. Um, and it was, it was huge. And like thrift shopping was not popular in York, Pennsylvania in the 90s. And so I like I could have taken 10 people with me and we would have all found a million amazing things, although I still mostly just like my grandma would drop me off and come back for me. But Whereas, like, up in Harrisburg and on the west shore of the river there, like, those stores were already picked through by, like, other – or picked through in my opinion, right? But probably going back, I'd be like, oh, my God, there's so much good stuff. But, you know, part of being really into secondhand shopping is complaining about 
people picking through That's it. That's right? true. It's just like part of the way <laughs> yes. of life. Um, yeah. So like it definitely, I think from, I mean, obviously most people who are listening to this, we are like preaching to the proverbial choir here. Like we all love secondhand. If you find this topic interesting, you've probably had at least some interaction with your li- in, with it in your life, if not it being like a major part of your life right now. Um, but it man, it's just like so interesting, like that it's not it's not a new thing. And it's been really fun to trace the thread to like the moment where you and I and all the people our mm-hmm. age got into it. So yeah. should we jump right into yeah, it? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So Kim, uh-huh. when someone says nineteen eighties to you, what do you envision? Because it's like a really specific I'm like mood. Like stonewash jeans. Oh, acid you know? wash A- jeans. Yeah, acid wash jeans, neon scrunchies, uh, you know, the, the look, the the tele- the classic television look. Yeah, yeah. Like shoulder pads. Uh-huh. Shoulder like, yes, working girl. Like shows and movies about just being rich, like the yeah. dynasty. Mm-hmm. The dynasty. No, I think it's believe just dynasty, mm-hmm. Dallas, you know, all of that. Movies about that, working girl, women like Trump into the office with their high top sneakers and their like power suits, you know, Uh, definitely like it's interesting when I think about the 80s at first pass, it feels like everything is brand new. Right. Like, I mean, spoiler, we're going to get into it. There are some vintage things at play, but right out of the gate, (laughs) it feels like it was almost like everything old got tossed away and we started over fresh. Yeah, everyone went to the mall. Yeah, exactly. And in some ways they did. So in the 1980s, three things are at play in the world of secondhand. One is that people are like so over the 70s. That's probably why for many of us, it feels as if everything was brand new. They don't want anything that looks remotely like it. So designers are borrowing actually from the 50s and earlier because somehow we ran out of new ideas already. It was only 1980. I don't know how. Uh, Women were dressing in menswear styles and shapes from those eras. They were also borrowing a lot of the like hyper femininity of that era, but mixing it with menswear. And then, of course, like there was this whole spin of like new colors, bold colors, neons, bright colors, mega shoulders, which weren't even like a new thing either. Those I want to say were from the... 30s and 40s. I mean, nothing was brand new, but it felt brand new because there was sort of like this new coat of paint thrown on it. It was also a time of faux prosperity. So people wanted to buy expensive things for less money and look like they had a lot of money, right? We also see a certain archetype appearing in movies and music, generally female, but not always, that embraces an eclectic secondhand style. And it's all a key component of their identity, their personality, their place in life. So let's start by breaking down these three phenomena. You know, first things first, by say 1982, the last thing anyone wanted to be associated with was the 1970s. I can't even think of a time in our lives, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, where we have been so mortified (laughs) by the previous 10 years, right? It's like Mm -hmm. so interesting. For many, it was a memory best left in the rear view. It was a decade full of financial struggles, the final five years of the Vietnam War, gas shortages, widening economic inequality, nuclear accidents. You know, I actually grew up by Three Mile Island um, and it had a pretty significant nuclear episode in 1979. Um, There was Watergate and it was just on and on and on. People were like, the 70s suck. 
Many look at the 70s as the end of a sort of like exuberant optimism that had persisted since the end of World War II. Like it was like things started getting real. And I do wonder, not that like I feel like, well, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? But right now it doesn't seem like, you know, three years into this decade that it's as like shockingly regretful yet as the 70s became for so many people. But I do wonder if like we're going to hit 2030 and people are going to be like, oh, oh God, God. Yeah. never talk to me about the 20s M- ever again. Millennials. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, who knows? Yeah. So as part of this, no one wanted to dress like it was the 70s anymore either. I mean, that was like embarrassing. That means no more disco, no bell bottoms, no leisure suits and no more synthetic fabrics. Well, kind of. Of course, synthetics would still be around, but kind of sparingly. And in these new, less 70s incarnations, thanks to improving fabric technology and kind of the end of that double knit polyester that is like iconic of the 70s. The 60s, a totally innocent decade that did not deserve this mistreatment, was also kind of lumped into this anti-70s sentiment because of the use of synthetic fabrics during the era, just sort of like an overlap of ideas. And people just had this major nostalgia for the 1950s, with filmmakers churning out some big movies set during that decade. And as I was looking at this list, I was like, oh, yeah, a lot of the movies that like my mom would be watching when I was a child were set in the 1950s. Oh, yeah. Kind of weird. And the other thing I'll call out is like, this is when those like, like 50s style diners started popping up everywhere. I love those places. Me too. They were like my I, favorite as a kid. Oh my God, me too. And you can like play the music at the table oh, and you get like yes. a milkshake and like a grilled cheese. Curly fries. And, yeah, and they were like fun. Like Nifty 50s is one in Philadelphia and there was like another chain. What was it? Like, um, I'm blinking on it now, but they had electricity when nobody else did. Johnny Rockets. There was like a power outage when I lived in Philadelphia and no one in any of the surrounding blocks had electricity except for Johnny Rockets. (laughs) And so then we're all in this like 50s diner, kind of half mad, but also like kind of having a good time. Uh Um, But there's all kinds of other ones all over the country and some of them are still around and some of them are, are long gone. But yeah, I do have a soft spot for them. And in terms of movies, we had Stand By Me, Back to the Future, which was technically about the 80s, but was mostly about the 50s. Peggy Sue Got Married, which was like always on rerun, I swear. Mm-hmm. Uh, La Bamba, the Richie Valen oh, story. Such a good movie. Such a good, good one. The Buddy Holly story. Uh, of course, your favorite, and hopefully now Neil's favorite, yes. Dirty Dancing. Exactly. And this is just like the tip of the iceberg. There was just so much 50s nostalgia in terms of entertainment. And we'd already... Not we, really, but people who are older than us had already received an early taste of 50s nostalgia in the 70s with American Graffiti, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and of course, Grease. And we know, even if we didn't live through them, that Grease started a lot of its own style trends. Like, it was such a huge movie. The return of the 50s makes sense for several reasons. You know, one was that the 70s had been a very rough time. And while all of us know, 
that the 50s were only a great time for white, cisgendered, straight men of a certain income level, it was widely considered a simpler and better time, Uh possibly because those are the same people that sort of control the cultural narrative, or at least that did then. It also hit that nostalgia sweet spot where it was reminding baby boomers of their childhoods, like perhaps, oh, I don't know, Kathy might uh-huh. be loving a, like, a nice 1950s movie. Oh, speaking of Kathy, I listened yes. to the podcast. It's excellent. And what did you think? Oh, my gosh. Yes. So Told good. Told you. Best theme song, too. I mean, amazing, amazing theme <laughs> song. Just really, really well done. And like, really opens up my perspective of Kathy, but also really dived into the zeitgeist of that time period. And it's just a fascinating listen. But that's, it's that's all so I'll say. fascinating. And how did you feel that now that you've listened, knowing that Kathy ultimately married her like schlubbo, <laughs> yeah. lame ass boyfriend? <laughs> disappointing right i just think kathy could have done better she could have done better but i mean it was the same thing as like the gilmore girls you know yeah it's like oh really you know wah, wah. but <laughs> uh, yeah definitely the same not thing. giving I mean, away any of that but if you haven't listened to the yeah no spoilers <laughs> on kath the plot of kathy <laughs> not kathy but no but gilmore girls oh yeah that's you i mean i heard that gilmore girls is basically a kathy reboot it it, it kind of is but Interesting. also it, but it also reminds me a little bit of um bridget jones diary mm. where you know she was talking to kathy was talking about how she was writing down like her weight her calorie oh, and i was so. like and she was like you know you know crying about men and i'm like oh my god you're <laughs> like, right I think this, this is bridget jones diary it is bridget jones diary wow mm-hmm. wow i wonder if Boom. Kathy Geiswhite should sue the writer of Bridget Jones' Diary. I don't know. Anyway, I, yeah, wow. What is, because I I remember reading Bridget Jones' Diary the first time and being like, what is up with this wackadoo writing down her weight every day? Like, I don't need this. You know, but you're right. Kathy was doing the same thing. Um, So, yeah. So, baby boomers like Kathy would be really into the 50s nostalgia because it reminded them of their, her childhood, but also, the parents of the boomers were like, oh, this reminds me of my early adulthood. So you get like that sweet spot totally. for both of them, right? Uh-huh. It's a nostalgia all- sandwich. Exactly. And it's like when you get mm-hmm. two generations caught in one bit of nostalgia, it's like money Ooh, in yeah, uh-huh, the bank, right? Exactly. There had also been so much aesthetic and cultural transformation in the 60s and 70s that the 50s felt like a completely different era, and it was really easy to romanticize. It looked so different than anything anyone had been living through for the last 20 years. And furthermore, the 50s and the 80s were sort of the bookends of the Cold War, with it beginning in the 1950s and ending in the 1980s. I do think that the uh, preppy, you know, how when we had the whole a couple episodes on preppy where the 50s were so popular with the prep style and then it became this massive thing in the 80s that there probably was some sort of mirror effect that was happening and kind of building on that i think so too yeah yeah i mean it's the 80s were really really transformative and actually i mean maybe every decade feels that way to some people but i will say having lived through like several decades now that like the 90s actually weren't as much I don't know. Like, they felt like a continuation. Um, By the way, if any of you, like, love Cold War nostalgia, (laughs) which I know is, like, a specific aesthetic genre, uh, I recently watched a series on Netflix called Cleo with a K. 
Um, it's like it's German, but it's overdubbed in English and not in a bad way. And it's about a female sort of like assassin slash spy during the collapse of Eastern Germany. It's fast East Germany, I guess, not Eastern Germany. Uh, it's fascinating. Oh my god, I'm gonna have to watch this. You will love it. It's really funny. Uh, Dustin keeps making fun of me because, like, in the like you know the little like few notes that they give you before you watch it to entice you, it says that like Stephen King loves this series. He's like, well, are you gonna like tweet? Stephen King about it and I was like no <laughs> anyway uh, yeah highly recommended also like looks so good so yeah that's the 80s right like we're like getting into the 50s in a big way and fashion trends there were fashion trends that were launched by this return of the 50s for example the Ray-Ban Wayfarer mm-hmm. an iconic sunglass shape of the 50s worn by James Dean Roy Orbison, countless other people. Um, I found this essay called Ever Wonder Why the 80s Look Like the 50s? Ask the 70s. And they explained how the Wayfarer became such a big deal. They said, the brand enjoyed a stratospheric resuscitation after inking a deal with Burbank-based Unique Product Placement, which, by the way, everyone, is a company that still exists. Its whole job is to get products into movies. Oh, um, like E.T. or like... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, like the uh, Reese's Pieces. Uh-huh. I can't eat a Reese's Pieces without thinking. It's true. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they pimped, according to this article, this is not a term <laughs> I would normally use, which pimped and subsequently placed the shades in about 300 movies wow. and television shows into the mid-80s. Um, they questioned, could risky business era Tom Cruise have peered through another brand of sunglasses as darkly? And I don't know. I specifically think of risky business when I think of the sunglass, not least of which because we they came back in the aughts and we were buying a shit ton of knockoff wayfarers at Urban Outfitters and we called them risky business. <gasps> Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So wait. Wayfarers would fall out of vogue in the 90s, kind of like pretty fast. Although, as you and I have discussed in the past, a lot of these sunglass choices of the 90s, I would not care to see again. And and it's sad when I do see them again. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, Like the wrap sunglasses, which I still still seeing them. Yeah, they never went away on dads across the world. They didn't. They didn't. Um, But the Wayfarers would return again in the aughts as 80s aesthetic became a key component which we're going to talk about in the next episode of that indie sleaze party hipster scene. Um, so the Wayfarer is just going to only be out of trend for like 10 years. Don't worry. But then during that 10 years, we will see some of the worst sunglasses that humans have ever seen. We got the weird tiny glasses, those wraparound glasses. It's true. I, it's just true. <laughs> so, many, so many bad glasses that nobody looked good wearing. <laughs> it's a really bad time for eyewear. <laughs> I mean, those are kind of back now, too, because it's the 90s. Yeah, that's true. It's, but are the wraparound ones? Oh, God, I'm not ready. I mean, you know that people like to be irreverent. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But those, it's like, I still see people genuinely wearing them because they've been wearing them <laughs> since the 90s. And it's always on, like, a sunburned neck. Uh-huh, like, on is. the back of a sunburned yeah. neck, right? It reminds me of, what's, what's that beer? It's, like, the one with the orange slice. And he's wearing the wraparound glasses. Yes. Yes. Anyway, don't do it, guys. Or do it. Whatever. Own it. But wear sunscreen on your neck. Mm -hmm. Um, There were a lot of other things that we saw directly translating from the 50s into the 80s. And like every time one decade decides to adopt the trends of a previous decade, they cherry pick them, right? They didn't do everything. Um, 
blue jeans and white t-shirts directly mimicking James Dean. And that also included motorcycle jackets, gloves, pearls, rhinestones, cardigans, and sweater clips, even poodle skirts and saddle shoes, fit and flare dress silhouettes, the new whole new look kind of vibe, polka dots. Um, in addition to these more traditional 50s looks, people of all genders were also loving the very traditional menswear coats of the 50s, often opting for the real thing, like a vintage one. And something I have noticed in my lifetime and while working on this series is that coats are frequently many people's first foray into secondhand and vintage clothing. Like they might never have been in a vintage store before, but suddenly like they're going to buy that coat. Mm-hmm. It's like the easy first step. Uh, There was a 1985 New York Times article called Vintage Coats, A Fad Keeps Growing. Those American and European designers who show oversized men's clothes for women have produced a bonanza for old clothing stores. Men's coats from the 1940s and 50s are being snapped up by young women and young men who either can't afford designer pieces or won't pay for them or find the vintage look more attractive. Whatever the motivation, Saturday on Lower Broadway from Astor Place to Canal Street is a mob scene of high school and college students. Smaller crowds can be seen in the West Village, the St. Mark's Place area, and Soho. Most of the shoppers are looking for used black and white tweed coats. I can like picture these. When they find them, they pay anywhere from $9.99 to $180. Most of the coats are in the $20 to $75 range. Many young members of the fashion avant-garde started buying such coats, mainly from thrift shops and flea markets, two or more years ago. Like many fads that originate on the street, this one has now come full circle. A couple of years ago, high fashion people were the base of our business, said Guy Levy, owner (laughs) of Chameleon, a vintage clothing store at 270 Bleecker Uh Street. Now people from the suburbs who wouldn't have been caught dead in old clothes are coming in, trying on the overcoats, rolling up the sleeves and feeling terrific. And I can like totally, I mean, like many of these trends that we talk about that kind of get their start in the secondhand realm, um, which in my career has been kind of the rule rather than the exception. By, I would say, the mid to late 80s, we see retailers making their own versions of these, like mass market retailers. Like I remember my mom having a coat like this and it definitely came from like somewhere at the mall you know like pennies yeah exactly exactly probably on sale at pennies with the coupon (laughs) many people who were into this 50s trend actually found themselves wearing a mix of vintage clothing and brand new stuff as more and more designers and brands began to make their own 80s does 50s which is also a great online secondhand shopping term if you want to google for that you will find 80s done does 50s and uh there are a lot more options there than actual 50s does 50s at this point and these retailers were creating 50s silhouettes in bold 80s print motifs 50s clothing was the most sought in the vintage world most vintage clothing aficionados kind of sneered at clothing from the 60s and later because it would be polyester and therefore mass produced so even these 80s does 50s new clothes wouldn't have had as much cachet as the real thing this desire for 50s clothing led more and more people to get into secondhand clothing and vintage shopping to be more authentic 
I found this 1982 New York Times article called A New Look in Old Clothes. Vintage clothing shops, once the realm of hippies, artists, and college students, today are attracting a more diverse clientele as people search for distinctive, well-made clothes at affordable prices. It used to attract primarily the eccentric, but I don't believe that's true anymore. I get all kinds of people who are looking to express their individuality and sense of style, said Belinda Faust, who owns Charisma, with an exclamation <laughs> point, in New Milford. There's been a rebirth of romanticism and nostalgia, said Miss Faust, whose store is painted in peachy hues. I can, like, picture it. I mean, it's, sure. it's totally pretty in pink. Right, right. In everything, movies, music, fashion, people are searching for a more romantic mood, and they're looking to the past for inspiration. Attitudes have definitely changed, said Joan Murphy, who owns the tiny shop Roxy Taylor in Old Avon Village. People aren't as concerned about something being used. I think it's because of the quality of the older garments and because the price of new clothing these days is astronomical. That's one person who's getting into secondhand shopping. And in this case, the focus was on vintage, right? Um, And don't worry, we're going to show you some more examples of that as we move through the 80s. Next, we have a swath of people who may have already been shopping secondhand who are who are continuing into the 80s, maybe picking up some more people along the way. And that is the person who is thrifty. The 80s are a big time of quasi prosperity. While egregious displays of wealth are the thing from luxury brands to sports cars to fur, leather coats. The reality is that wealth inequality is continuing to widen and more and more people are struggling. Yet there's this drive to look wealthy, right? The Reagan administration removed a lot of the regulations that were designed to protect consumers, workers, and our planet. To be honest, it was kind of the beginning of the end. Um, and there, the administration's reasoning was that these regulations were holding back business growth, which was therefore holding back American prosperity, it turned out. Kind of to not be the case, but, you know, bless them for trying. What really happened is that the rich got richer and everyone else struggled. The administration also chipped away at the social safety net as much as possible, driving more people into even more dire situations than they had been in in the 70s. So many people aren't doing well financially in a decade that is all about seeming as conspicuously wealthy as possible. So why not buy all of those fancy designer clothes, shoes, and purses secondhand? Because brands are such a big deal in That's the right. 80s. Yeah. They're going to continue to be a big deal in the 90s. And, you know, to I would say to a certain extent now, but the what brands mean and what those brands are has definitely changed decade over decade over decade. And that's always really interesting to think about, too. But this is like the era of, like, the brand, you know? Mm-hmm. It turns out there are plenty of brands like name brand goods to find at consignment stores and thrift shops. These types of stores saw even more growth than they had had in the 70s, which in the last episode we talked about, that was like really substantial. And I was trying to think of like brands of the 80s that would be a big deal without like actually looking up. And I kept coming back to LA gear. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) Oh, I remember LA gear, of course. Yeah, but I mean, there were so many more. There was a spree. There was Guess. Benetton. Oh yeah, for sure. Big, and even big like- dog. <laughs> big dog is really big. <laughs> At least in the Midwest. I think I've talked yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. No, they were big in my school too. Tom- Tommy. Oh yeah, Tommy uh-huh. Hilfiger. Yeah, I mean it was all about like designer brands, like name brand jeans. I remember this was something that would like 
I don't know, it's something my mom liked to complain about, like people having to have a brand on their butts. And I'm like, Gloria mm-hmm. Vanderbilt. Yes. Ooh, that was a that's big a one. good one. Mm-hmm. Jordash. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, designer jeans were a thing. Calvin Klein, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the 80s, like brand was everything. Everything. So th- I came across this 1982 article from the New York Times called Prosperity Drops In at the Thrift Shops. Sometimes these titles are so good. This is a little bit of a long read, but I picked my favorite things because I think they really tell this story. While some owners of department stores and retail shops have been crying the recession blues, business has never been brisker at the thrift shops run by Long Island charities that sell donated merchandise and equipment to raise funds for their philanthropies. The five Long Island thrift shops of the National Council of Jewish Women reported an increase of sales volume of about 25%. Over the last year, that's like an incredible sales comp, by the way. Anywhere I've worked, we would have been dying to get that. The St. Vincent de Paul Society, which operates six stores and warehouses in Nassau and Suffolk counties and opened its seventh and largest store a few days ago in Selden, reports that its gross sales have reached the $1 million a year mark double the gross sales figure of four years ago. And the Salvation Army, with seven stores in the two counties, estimates that its sales will be about $1.5 million this year, up 10% over last year. Jeez, and that's the 80s. I know, and this is just a few stores, everyone. According to Blossom Zimmerman, great name, five stars, yep. the coordinator of the Do you the think Nash- she changed her name? Or do you think she was born a Blossom? I mean, I don't know. There was Blossom, you know, the TV show, which is going to come out. In the, yeah, that but still, 90s. she could be, you know, it could be a family name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. <laughs> or may, maybe a hippie name. That's true. Blossom Zimmerman, if mm-hmm. you're listening. So good. So tell good. us about your name. Well, she was the coordinator of the National Council's Peninsula Section Thrift Shop. She said the recession and inflation, which have hurt the regular retail trade, have contributed to the upsurge in thrift sales. Once again, this is like a phenomenon. We saw this happening in the 70s. We're seeing it happen right now, right? Like when people have less money, they shop secondhand. At one time, she said, there was a widespread belief that only people at the poverty level would buy at stores selling donated merchandise. But now the cost of everything is so high that people from the middle class and even the upper middle class are looking for bargains and they have discovered we have good ones to offer. James Mulcahy, the director of stores for St. Vincent de Paul, said that some of the organization's stores were called nearly new shops because today's thrift merchandise has improved markedly. He said that in addition to the recession and inflation, the flea markets had indirectly contributed to the increase in thrift sales. The flea markets, he said, have educated middle class people to the fact that if they went to the right places, they could buy new merchandise at discounts. After that, they became interested in merchandise that was slightly used at even greater savings. This next section is fascinating and I had to include it. Changing social patterns also have affected sales, according to thrift store supervisors. They say that many unmarried young couples do not want to make a commitment to buying new furniture. And so they go to thrift shops where their furniture investment is small. The new social climate affects donations as well as purchases. The rate of divorces and separations keeps climbing, Mr. Mulcahy said. In a sense, we are in a distress business. When there is the stress of a family breakup, we benefit from the donation of appliances and furnishings that are no longer needed because of the split. And I was like, oh, yeah, like 
Most of my friends' parents got divorced in the 80s or early 90s. I guess maybe they did donate a lot of stuff. Yeah, exactly. What a weird thing to think about. Yeah. And and as a college student, I remember getting, getting you know, couches and things from the thrift store because it, we didn't need to invest in anything that was like a long-term solution. Well, right. And I don't know about you, but like when my parents would go buy furniture, like new, it was like a thing. It's like it was. so expensive. Like was, we didn't have Ikea back then. You got dressed up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, exactly. It was like a whole day at the mm-hmm. furniture store, right? Um, oh, was, the and worst. Like, yeah, the worst. So boring. My brother and I would go so around boring. and play in the fake rooms and probably like annoy everyone. We'd be like, what if we lived here and we had these bunk beds? That kind of stuff. <laughs> um, anyway, like, you know, college students, people who are just out of college, people who are living together are not going to go get dolled up and spend the day at the furniture store and then spend like thousands and thousands of dollars on a like a living room suit. You know, it was it was the now you can go to Ikea and you can buy things by the piece and it's not as expensive. But this was like a very different time in terms of furniture and even like more things like dishes and whatnot. So thrift stores, once again, were seeing that they should invest more money into the general sort of like vibe of their spaces. So they remodeled, they re-merchandised, and they tried to make the stores look even more like regular stores that sell new stuff. And like the 70s, we see thrifting becoming even more mainstream for people of all economic levels. From a 1986 New York Times article called Thrift Shops Are Updating Their Image. We have everything from the very best to the very cheapest, said Nanette Hayes, president of Everybody's Thrift Shop. But we're in an affluent time when the better stuff is selling. People on welfare don't shop in thrift shops. And I wanted to include that because, you know, there's always been, and I see this argument coming up a lot, not that I want to get into it here, about the ethics of resale, that thrift stores are for poor people. And that if you shop there and you're not poor poor in quotes, all poor in quotes here, then you are doing a disservice, that you are stealing things from poor people. And the reality is that like, there, it's been a long time since thrift stores were only for poor people to shop in, like, like a hundred years, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I do wonder about this quote a lot because while my family was poor and would have been well served to shop at thrift stores, it was highly stigmatized in my low income community. Like when I started thrifting, my mom was so embarrassed. And my grandma would be like, if there was like a family event cu- coming up, and my grandma like loves me and was very supportive of everything I did, but she would ask my mom to ask me not to wear any thrift store clothes because it was just mortifying, right? There was sort of this feeling that if you entered a thrift store, you were completely surrendering any chance at being middle class or achieving the American the American dream. Basically, the last thing you could do was engage in something that made you seem poor, even if you were poor. It was about denying poorness. And so my family was far more likely to shop at Kmart and other discount stores than any thrift store out there. And so I personally had never been in a thrift store until... I made the decision as a young teenager to get into it. It was like a whole new world for me. And I do 
have friends who are like, oh, my family's been thrifting their whole lives. That was not my family. I'm assuming it was not yours either. Kim. No, uh, yeah. no, not at all. Yeah. I told you my mother would throw away, <laughs> secretly throw away my thrift store clothes <laughs> um, in the trash. I would, I would go down because she did all the laundry. You know, I was very lucky growing up. She did all the laundry. Wow. And But she would also filter mm. through. And I remember finding one of my t-shirts in her, in her trash and I was like, oh. <gasps> <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. My mom would do that too with like I had a bunch of like Star Wars t-shirts that I had thrifted and also I'm still holding a grudge about this nine inch nail shirt that I wore all through high school and forgot to take to college and it was never to be seen again oh. and it was so worn in and perfect yeah that one definitely ended up in the trash I would never do that by the way to my child <laughs> no <laughs> right no. Anyway, thrifting was still seen as a savvy move for people with more money, not people with less money, which I think is, oh, it's just, just, people are so weird sometimes. And as part of that, the New York Times, which is like outside of New York, like if you're reading the New York Times now even, you probably have a little bit of extra money, right? It was regularly publishing tips and tricks for thrifting for all the newbies. Like every year or two, there'd be a whole rundown. And throughout the year, they would share lists of different resale and thrift stores you should check out. I thought it was super interesting. Hmm. So the final cultural phenomenon sort of fueling interest in secondhand shopping, well, it be we began to see an archetype forming in film and music. The wacky slash cool, often female person who rejected the mainstream style, which at this point would have been preppy as the decade progressed, in favor of, of an eclectic, maximalist secondhand style. Um, so let's look at some of these style icons. They definitely have impacted me as I grew up. First one is Cindy Lauper. Um, such a vintage lover that she worked at Screaming Mimi's, which I don't know if it's around anymore, but it was an iconic vintage clothing store in the village through the 90s, at the very least. I've been there. Um, she worked there in her late 20s because I actually discovered this week that Cindy Lauper didn't achieve like mainstream success as a musician until she was in her 30s, which was kind of surprising to me because I feel like there's always this like expectation that if you're not successful in your 20s at anything you do, then your life is over. I mean, actually, that's really funny because I was watching the um, CBGB movie, which is meh, you know, on Netflix <laughs> yesterday. And um, they have a portrayal of Debbie Harry, uh -huh. um, you know, from Blondie. And Neil was looking it up, you know, because he was curious about her um, kind of kind of when she got popular. And she didn't get popular till she was in her 30s as well. And we were shocked about that. Yeah, especially in the 80s, right? Cause, yeah. Like, not, not a time where people were really thinking mm -hmm. of women having value beyond a certain age um and her style is just like iconic in that it is like extra maximal in every way <laughs> like it is like yes lots of jewelry lots of tchotchkes mm -hmm. lots of layers mixed fabrics garments customized and upcycled into other things crazy hair just like a really strong look uh Le Officiel did a little sort of retrospective into her style over the years and they said Lopper was known for her distinctive free-spirited image that was influenced by bold trends of the 80s an armful of stacked bracelets bright colored locks and retro cut dresses and skirts Lopper blended the boldness of the 80s with punk rock elements when it came to her ensembles and she she was a character right mm -hmm. like the way she talked 
Exactly. The way she performed. You know, she was in some movies and she has this like really, really distinctive voice that is like quirky. Um, definitely a fashion icon still. Next were the B-52s, which I always think of as a 90s band, but nope. Actually, they got their start in the 70s. They're really like big in the 80s. I just was unaware of it. I found this amazing Vice article by Scarlett Newman that you should all give a read. It's going to be in the show notes. It focuses on the importance of wigs in the B-52s aesthetic and image. And I was like, oh, my God, you're right. They do wear a lot of wigs. They kind of started with just Mm -hmm. like passing around random thrift store wigs like back and forth. But over time, like it became a more curated and I would assume more expensive undertaking. Um, But this quote was great. The front women, Kate Pearson and Cindy Wilson, managed to hone in on a style that heavily referenced the 50s and 60s, combined with elements of futurism. Lots of reflective materials, lots of silver and sky-high hairstyles that resembled satellite towers. Establishing an iconic image early on worked in their favor as the band started to grow and build a fan base in the early 70s. On stage, they celebrated an exaggerated version of femininity. Femininity. That is such a hard word to say. With a touch of drag and a touch of science fiction B-movie. It wasn't your standard nihilistic punk image full of rage, but it was still pretty punk. And I think this is the first time we really see, like in the 80s, we see musicians, like mainstream musicians, because B-52s had a lot of major hits in the 80s. We see them very, like, obviously and vocally adopting vintage aesthetic mm-hmm, and wearing exactly. secondhand vintage clothing as part of that. Can you even think about that? Like looking at these, these photos, just it's fascinating. And they look like they could be from now, you yeah. know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when we get into films of that era, we start to see this archetype becoming an even bolder statement about class the boredom and predictability of the middle class, and a general way of life and attitude about life. And one, I can't decide if this movie holds up or not. It is Madonna in Desperately Seeking Susan. I mean, I still like that movie. I think I do I, too, yeah. It, I'm, I'm not sure if it holds up, but I, I still really enjoy it. And I love the fashion. I love the fashion. This one mm-hmm. came out in 1985. And this, this film alone, starring Madonna at this time, and having just such iconic wardrobe, I mean, major impact on fashion and retail trends for the rest of the decade. Oh my god! I bet if if this came out around Urban Outfitters time, I know, I, mean, it, you, I know, it would just be a, a cash cow, a cash cow for sure. Uh-huh. Uh, this is another movie that definitely people look back on as a major style touchstone of the past, you know, fifty years. Uh, I read this article called Desperately Seeking Susan's Lessons in Thrifting and Thrills. It's from another mag, another one you should totally go check out. The writer says, Susan is never clad in kitschy clothes. And I think the the lack of kitschiness is really important here because some of the other characters we're going to talk about are, and definitely the B-52s and Cyndi Lauper were. They were more on the kitschy end of this. Madonna seems to be permanently draped in the sheen of polyester and lycra with an abundance of lace and the clinking and clacking of multiple trinkets following her wherever she goes. She has a particular penchant for gloves, which she refuses to take off 
even to snack on cheese doodles, disgusting, and presents as someone who has tripped and fallen into a clothes rail at a thrift store at all times. So naturally, when Susan arrives in New York, she immediately embarks on a secondhand shopping trip, falling in love with a pair of sequin boots in the window of her go-to store, Love Saves the Day. Exchanging her jacket for the dazzling footwear, Roberta, who's the other character in the film, who has at this point been following Susan's movements movements in complete awe, buys that jacket for herself. Bringing that jacket home, Roberta's yuppie husband is less than pleased. You bought a used jacket? What are we, poor? Thus, the theme of thrifting present throughout the film is suddenly rendered a political statement, representing an antithesis to the money-obsessed capitalist culture of the 1980s. And so, I'm going to try to like remember the plot of this film to the best of my ability, but hopefully Kim, between the two of us, we can like patchwork it together. Basically, there are two characters in this one film. One is Susan, played by Madonna, and the other is Roberta, played by Patricia Arquette. Is that right? Rosanna Arquette. A different... Those Arquettes, man, taking over film. Anyway, so Roberta lives like on Long Island. She's like housewife yeah you know like has kind of like not very happy marriage uh just isn't up to anything cool right and and knows it and so she goes into the city encounters susan played by madonna and kind of follows her around immediately fastest girl crush in the history of girl crushes and so she's following madonna's character around and after madonna trades this very iconic jacket and don't worry we're going to share all these photos but this jacket is like i Conic has a pyramid on the back of it, lots of gold thread. After Madonna swaps for those boots, I know they're they're fine, but you know, bigger mistakes have been made, I guess. So she trades the jacket for the shoes. And so then Roberta, who's got this mega girl crush, and also can see that this coat is a hot deal, buys the coat. Now here's where I sort of lose the thread because I think something happens to Roberta where she gets amnesia. And she thinks she's Susan, right? But somehow then Susan ends up in Roberta's house back on Long Island with her husband, right? And then hijinks ensue. (laughs) Yeah, I guess we have to (laughs) rewatch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, at like, Grand, not at Grand Central Station, at um, Port Authority bus station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's all kinds of stuff. I guess we need to rewatch it. Definitely. So this, I mean, this film is like so iconic. I did not see this until I was more like a teenager. But I remember I had a poster for this movie, even though I had not seen it in my room in like third grade because I just thought everyone in it looked so cool. Um, and also at this time, like like I said, this, this had such a massive impact from a style perspective that retailers were happy to cash in on making brand new versions of all the secondhand and vintage clothing that was in the movie. For example, there was a mall retailer called Baker's. I don't know if, if y'all have this in Wisconsin, but it was like a shoe brand. 
They had the exclusive license to make a collection of shoes inspired by the film, including copies of the boot that Madonna had very recklessly traded that jacket for. Um, for a mere forty nine ninety nine, you could get that boot. I mean, that's pretty. That's a pretty expensive boot for that time period. Yeah, I know, I know, and it's like bedazzled. Mm-hmm. It has a fold over cuff. It looks really uncomfortable. Yeah, it's got a kind of kitten heel, pointy yeah, toe. Yeah. Oh, so many kitten heels in this mm-hmm. time period too. Which I, I don't know about. Do you do a kitten heel? No, I mean, I just don't. Yeah. I don't even do heels anymore. I'm just like, ugh. It's just like with a kitten heel, it's like all the weirdness of a heel without the impact. So why not just go for it, right? Um, Anyway, I thought that that was really interesting. And this is not the first or last time we're going to see retail saying like, hey, y'all don't need to go secondhand shopping. We'll just make it for you. You know, in this case, I think it was pretty successful. And I can look, I don't think anyone ever made Madonna's jacket from that, but everything else I could see in these photos, I was like, oh, yeah, you could find all of this at the mall. The big oversized menswear coats, the bracelets, the lace gloves, the belts, the bodysuits, the bows, all of that was available for anyone, anywhere they went at the mall. So next, we have Pretty in Pink, which came out a year later in 1986. And so far, we've seen there's like this spectrum of these archetypes of secondhand in the 80s. We've got the super kitschy quirkiness of the B-52s and Cyndi Lauper. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have Madonna being just like really sexy and like like not, it wasn't funny, right? It was like very serious and calculated, but also chaotic. And I feel like the, Andy, the main character of Pretty in Pink, kind of lands in the middle there on that spectrum where she doesn't look chaotic or And she doesn't look kitschy, but she looks very vintage and unique. Um, Costume designer Marilyn Vance created the looks in Pretty in Pink. And if you've seen this movie, which I'm sure you've seen it, Kim, right? Of course. Oh, my God. Uh, Many, many times. I can barely remember what happens in it, but I remember the clothes so clearly. And here we see the secondhand aesthetic being the realm of the cool but outsider working class kids. No John Hughes movie really holds up in 2023. There's just a lot of rape culture and casual mm-hmm. racism and classism and lots of other stuff in it. So I don't necessarily recommend a rewatch or a watch for the first time if you haven't seen it. But the style is on point. So maybe just Google some photos again. Like looking at all the outfits in this movie, I was like, yes, 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 and yes. All relevant now would be like someone's dream wardrobe yes. at this point. <laughs> Right. And it made like Molly Ringwald just like a hero to so many girls all at once and just such a fashion icon. In 2021, Molly Ringwald told Vogue, at that point, people were still mostly going to the mall and shopping at places like Judy's, which I've never heard of, or The Gap, which I have definitely heard of. The idea of shopping vintage was somewhat bizarre. Everything Andy wears was sourced from vintage stores in Los Angeles, and that was very much the way I shopped at the time. I definitely think the film had an impact on the teen's in that teens started dressing in more vintage outfits and in more layers. I really loved everything Marilyn did except the prom dress, which I've been very pretty open about not liking at the time. I know. I actually didn't like it at the time either. I was like, that's Me not neither. flattering. Okay, I was going to ask you how you felt about it. Because the in the movie, it's two different dresses. It's like the dress her dad gets her, which is fine, and a dress that her friend slash boss at the record store, Iona, gives her, which is like incredible. It's like from the 50s, I want to 
say, or 60s. Probably yes. 60s. Yes. He buys, so she has these two dresses and then she takes them home and she turns them into a goddamn travesty. It's, yeah, it's like a weird <laughs> bag of a dress. With like a high lace collar and a cold shoulder and then it's like sort of like a muumuu and it actually looks very old. It ages her. Yeah, it does. Um, so I remember the, watching this movie and always being like, oh, man, I wish she would have worn one of the other dresses as is mm-hmm. every time. And exactly. as, as, and then seeing it as like an adult, I was like, man, she really destroyed those two dresses that were great that I wish still existed. And believe it or not, that dress really was in real life made of those two dresses. They really did cut up two oh, dresses. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That would so make sense. In 2017, Molly Ringwald really told us how she feels about the dress in an essay she wrote for Teen Vogue. She said, I'm still not sure how that dress happened. I don't know if I was swayed by Marilyn's passion when she talked me through the sketches or distracted by the algebra final I was preparing to take in my trailer in between scenes. But whatever the reason, I signed off on the design. Weeks later, when I saw the dress for the first time, I burst into tears. The only thing I liked and even vaguely remembered from the consultation was the halter neckline. The puffy sleeves and inverted triangle sack-like silhouette confounded me, but it was too late to change it. I mean, I, f- I, I would love to see it with a belt. Um, I, yeah. I also kind of think like the strapless thing is kind of not flattering on her. It no, just, no. It just it does these weird points. It's just... It's very, very weird. It's I don't understand what was happening there. And I guess, did you know that uh, the film was originally, like the original ending, which was filmed, had her ending up with Ducky? And it didn't test well. Or people at the studio were like, no, nope, you got to change it. She's got to end <gasps> really? up with the hunky, preppy guy. Yeah. So they refilmed the ending. And Molly Ringwald was actually really stoked because she was like, okay, maybe I can get a better dress now. Because she was just sort of like, I don't even want to be on camera in this horrible <laughs> thing. People are going to remember it, yeah, right? And of yeah. course they are. We're talking about it right now. And so she was hoping that they would get a new outfit and reshoot the whole thing. But to save money, they only reshot like a couple elements and used everything else. So she had to wear the dress again. And she was really, really oh, disappointed. the trauma. It's like going, going going to your own prom wearing a dress you hate. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It reminds me of like, I don't know if you ever watched Beverly Hills 90210, but Andrea ended up last minute, go, I guess Andrea, ended up going last minute to the prom in some dress of her mom's, which totally looked like a, something a mom would wear to like a wedding, like as mother of the bride. And it was... <laughs> Just like, but she was not, already the old lady of the I show. I know, I know. And I was like, come on, guys. Like, in retrospect, I'm like, y'all were way too mean to her. Yeah. Like, she was not that old, okay? She really wasn't. She was, wasn't she like in her early 30s? She was like, yeah, 30 or something. They always dressed her like she was 55. <laughs> so bizarre. I was like, I get it, guys. Y'all think she's old, okay? Move on. Um, it made her stand out like a sore thumb. Okay, so in this film, if you haven't seen it, we have two different groups of people who dress very, very differently. We have the preppy rich kids, and they dress this sort of light-colored, cliche, 80s preppy style. They're definitely not wearing secondhand clothes. Then we have the quirky, vintage outsider people who would totally be all of our friends. They have great taste in music, and they probably grew up to be super cool creatives. That's Ducky, who is Andy's best friend, Andy, the main character. Andy's boss at the record store, Iona, played by 
the glorious Danny yes. Potts, and then other people in their social group because somehow these this group of people is so cool that they like go to shows and bars and they're just doing cool stuff all the time and hanging out at the record store, whereas these preppy people just seem so miserable. So I found this amazing Fast Company interview with pretty and pink costume designer Marilyn Vance, and she talks about how she put this stuff together. You should all go read the whole thing, but there were a couple things I wanted to call out from it because they were really illuminating for me. She said, both Andy and Ducky have extremely good taste in fashion for high school kids or just about anybody. The way these characters dress is utterly unique for the era, but in addition to communicating taste, their clothes also say a lot about their thrift shop hopping financial situation. Economically speaking, Ducky couldn't go out and buy the linen suit worn by Steph, an insanely hot yuppie James Spader. Oh, I think creepy. Anyway, he wouldn't think about it because he couldn't afford it, Vance says. There's a scene in the movie where Andy's looking around for a prom dress. You see her outfit there. She's actually wearing a little jumper under that pattern dress, which we made, because she put that outfit together herself, and this is how she was perceived. She couldn't keep up with those other girls. There was no way. As counterpoints to Andy and Ducky's economic status, Vance dressed up Steph and Blaine's Andrew McCarthy, whole well-to-do group of people, to look a certain way. The costume designer went to Kmart and bought beige and pink and blue and white and just mixed up everything for the girls and the boys. All the friends of Steph and Blaine served as a backdrop and a subtle color-coded reinforcement of Andy and Ducky's outsider status. I thought that was fascinating. Yes. The rich kids were wearing clothes yes. from Kmart. <laughs> and it kind of like, the color scheme kind of just made them all like even more bland yeah. and depressing, right? I love that. I love that. She said, Ducky will always be my favorite character. He was modeled after the Teddy Boys from England in the 70s, the big haircuts and layered outfits. John Cryer was the straightest guy you'd ever met, which I think she meant that he was a real nerdlinger, a Dorcas Malarcus. He came in looking like a nerd. It was who he was, but the character, he was open to visualize the character and work with us. <laughs> it worked. Um, it worked, it right? Works. Every interview I've ever read with her, which I've read a lot this week, she always has to remind everyone that John Cryer is just like the biggest nerd ever. <laughs> I mean, so we, we've funny. seen him on Two and a Half Meds. I know. So yes. oh, oh, what was he thinking? I know. I know. I know. So by the end of the 80s, we have a lot of people shopping secondhand for different reasons. One is people who are trying to get that authentic 50s aesthetic. Next are people who want to have that conspicuous wealth look of the 80s, but don't want to or can't afford to spend that kind of money. Then we have the people who were already shopping secondhand in previous decades, the creative types, the queer community, and anyone who was sort of like anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist. And then we have young people being inspired by a whole new set of fashion icons from musicians to fictional characters to curate their own secondhand style. And I love this. We've got like a big cross section of people shopping secondhand, but all for different reasons and all are looking for different stuff. Right. So you could go thrift shopping together and not take one another's things. That's so true. I was going to change yeah. when we get mm -hmm. to the 90s for sure. But yeah. Um, the other thing is that no one was talking about running out of secondhand clothing. In fact, a change in U.S. tax code that is far too boring for me to explain here that happened in 1988 led to an overwhelming flood of donations in 1987 because people would no longer be able to write off donations in the same way the next year. 
thrift stores were literally posting signs turning away donations because there was far too much to process or house. Like it just was not working. And so some people then had to wait until the next year to get rid of their stuff, but with a far lower write-off. Furthermore, clothes were continuing to be shipped overseas to the global South and Europe, and American secondhand clothes were becoming more and more popular in Europe in the 80s. According to the New York Times, the popularity of American styles in Paris is hardly new. First came Le Blue Jeans. Then the university sweatshirt craze hit. Next, a passion for Cub Scout uniforms inexplicably overcame the French. Interesting. (laughs) I know. know. These are all news to me. But only in the past year or so have Parisians begun wearing used American clothes. Uh, They talked to a secondhand seller of the name Maurice, as in Mr. Maurice. And he says during the Vietnam War, no one wanted to look like an American. Then in the 70s, the dollar fell and the French started going to the U.S. They fell in love with the easygoingness of the states, and that's what the clothes represent. His partner, Patrick Brieg, agrees. Europeans are naturally uptight. It is somehow easier for them to be themselves in American clothes. But there are also more pragmatic explanations for the fact that the French are dressing up in old American clothes. Used clothing prices are low compared with the price of clothes in France. for a good quality man's shirt, for example, and a bargain compared to the cost of the trendy American copies with imitation American labels that French manufacturers are turning out. So they were making their own copies of secondhand stuff, even in France. It's not just Americans who do this dumb stuff, okay? Enthusiasts say that American clothes are better made than French and last longer, used or not. Even when French manufacturers buy the denim from the U.S., The jeans wear out faster than American jeans, said Gaston Carcenti, a wholesaler. Mr. Carcenti is amazed at the condition of the American clothes he receives. Some look as if they've never been worn, he says with approval, leaning on one of hundreds of burlap wrap bales in his Rue Pelleport warehouse. So I thought that was really interesting that people would have been embarrassed to wear American clothes during the Vietnam War. Bad, bad PR look for the for the United States. Right. But now they're like, oh, I want to get into American culture. And we know that the French, they are like iconic, like known in high regard for being this like epicenter of some of the most stylish stuff you can find in the world. And now they're like, yeah, we'll take some American clothes. I would love to know what they were wearing. I mean, (laughs) Cub, Cub Scout uniforms, I guess. I guess. I'm just kidding. Probably the same stuff, like the Benetton and the, you know, Gloria Vanderbilt and the Calvin Klein (laughs) jeans, you know, all that stuff. I probably wanted that. Yeah. I don't know. I actually don't know. I don't know either. Uh, If you were there at the time, let us know. Okay. Well, let's transition into the 1990s. So where were we economically? Well, the economy is still bad. In fact, I think that's just something we say from now on about every decade. In fact, in the early 90s, the U.S. is in a big old recession. We see more and more conversation about the shrinking of the middle class as the country feels the hangover of all of the pro-business, anti-people policies of the 1980s. The conspicuous consumption of the 80s is straight up embarrassing, but people do still care about brands, just different brands, right? And like 
if you were to show up in like a Maserati or something with like big shoulder pads and huge earrings and all of the like iconic 80s looks, people would shun you just as much as if, as if you had showed up in like a Mr. Furley jumpsuit in 1982. Right. People are just like, get that out of here. That is embarrassing. So maybe the 70s and the 80s were kind of like the most embarrassing decades to people. I don't know. They're very different, which I think is really interesting. But yeah, they aged poorly, but came back later and mortified tons of parents when they did. Interestingly enough, in the 90s, thrifting isn't as big for the general adult population. Despite this economic situation, which I think is an interesting because it was still pretty relevant in the 80s. It's interesting also because retail is not having a great time. A 1995 article from the San Francisco Examiner says it pretty bluntly, 90s have been rough on retail. Retail sales for the state of California as a whole during the first four years rose a pathetic 3% total. Subtract seven percentage points for population growth, and that gain evaporates into a 4% decline in per capita sales. Basically, retail was shrinking. And while this was data for California, it was really indicative of retail for the entire country. But in the 1980s, you know, while in the 1980s, people looking for affordable brand new clothes had only two options, basically catch a sale at the mall or shop secondhand. In the late 90s, I mean, the late 80s and early 90s, a new group of players emerged in a much bigger way. One was Walmart, right? The first Walmart I've ever been to opened in the early 90s near my town where I grew up. I don't know. Did you guys have Walmart in Wisconsin back then? Oh, my gosh. That's a good question. I I actually don't remember. We weren't a, a huge Walmart going crew. We definitely had Kmart. We had Kmart, too, and then Walmart showed up and basically squashed Kmart. Like, we were always at Kmart. That's where we went to buy household supplies and stuff. But, yeah, then Walmart came, and it was like the whole town was ready to go to Walmart. It was how fast it shut down Kmart is pretty wild to me. Um, We also had the emergence of Costco and Sam's Club, which, you know, are these clubs that you join. I have a Costco membership even now. And you go buy things in bulk there. But you could also buy name brand clothes. You know, you could buy yourself some Adidas track pants or some sort of like Eddie Bauer pullover, that kind of thing, like name brand at a lower price. And then off price stores like TJ Maxx, Marshalls and Ross really blew up. TJX, which is the parent company of TJ Maxx, was on a roll in the 1990s buying Marshalls, launching home goods and opening new stores all over the U.S., Today, these stores are primarily stocked with goods that are made especially for them that aren't really that great. But back then, they really were scooping up closeouts from brands and department stores, especially as the recession continued to impact regular retail sales. You could get some smoking hot deals at TJ Maxx. Also in this time period, outlet malls begin to just like blow up and pop up everywhere. In the late 80s and through the 1990s, before e-commerce comes on the scene ruining everyone's dreams, we see outlet malls popping up all over the United States, and many chains find them to be an exceptional means of liquidating excess product at a decent margin. And this is when you could go to an outlet mall and really buy stuff that was like closeout or excess and get a good deal. Now, most outlet malls are just selling you stuff that they made to sell at the outlet mall. So 
This is like the golden era of sort of off price. And so the brand focused mainstream adult shopper had an easy way to find affordable clothes without thrifting. And the reality is that no matter how many of us, how all of us feel who are listening to this, the majority of people are always going to vote for something new over secondhand. There's just a lot of stigma attached to secondhand items. And suddenly we have all these retailers popping up who are giving you low, low prices on name brand goods. Can't resist it. I don't know if you ever had to go with the whole family to the outlet mall, but man, my grandma loves an outlet mall. And we would go for like a whole day. Um, we did go. We would go. I just, not, it wasn't constant. We, we, we would go to a couple times, but you'd always kind of find something that you regretted buying. <laughs> we, in Pennsylvania, there were two major places for outlet shopping. They were both pretty far from where I lived. And one was in Reading, Pennsylvania, where a lot of like, what well, was like VF, Vanity Fair, uh, had a humongous outlet center where they had Lee jeans and some other denim brands. Um, They had, I think they had Wrangler too. Um, They had all kinds of bras and nightgowns and other brands. They had like Eastport backpacks or whatever. They had so much stuff. And so we would have to go school shopping with my grandma there and I'd be so pissed off all day because one, it was so boring. And two, this is just a personal problem. Because my middle name is Lee, I just like had a mental block to wearing Lee jeans. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and it was such a boring, no frills situation. And people would be showing up by like the bus load. And you had to bring a picnic lunch and eat outside. This is like true no. outlet life, right? No, thank right, you. Right, exactly. And then later, like they opened a massive sort of compound of outlet malls in Lancaster County, actually not too far from where I lived before moving to Austin. And that was another one where like you go there and all day you just tromp from store to store and like as a kid you're just like i really don't care but man <laughs> my my grandma just loved it and be like make a day of it you know go eat lunch at bob evans <laughs> anyway this customer who was sort of like i don't want to shop at thrift stores and i'm going to go to outlets and tj maxx and stuff also felt okay shopping at a consignment shop which for those of you who are unfamiliar that is basically like you bring in your clothes the store determines what they're going to take from you and they determine the price they're going to sell for. And when it sells, you get paid. If it doesn't sell, you got to come take your stuff and you don't get any money, right? So these stores are very picky about what they take. It's not a donation situation. People loved this in the 90s and it like really blew up. And we actually saw like franchises and chains developing based on this concept. People liked it because it gave them the opportunity to get some cash for their unwanted stuff, which you might remember was happening in the 1970s as well. Back then, people were using yard sales and flea markets as a means of making some cash off of things they didn't want anymore. But consignment stores were easier and the seller might make more money. Many of these shops provided a more boutique, like curated experience. And the country as a whole saw strong sales growth in this particular type of retail throughout the 90s. Uh, from a 1991 New York Times article called The Shops Where Recession and Recycling Meet, which, by the way, I'm going to tell you, this implies that there's some ecological, like environmental spin on wearing secondhand clothes. And I barely saw that coming up even in the 90s. Even as we were all getting recycling fever, people weren't thinking about it in terms of clothes. Recession and recycle. 
Those words are changing the way a lot of people shop. The owners of the stores that sell previously owned merchandise, for example, say they are seeing a lot of new customers seeking bargains in this form of recycled goods. Mind you, these are not dowdy thrift shops, but resale establishments with names like Instant Replay, Elegance 2, I don't know about Elegance (laughs) 1, The Clothesline, and Play It Again, where shoppers pick up pre-owned clothes and children's toys for a fraction of their original cost. We've always catered to the woman who describes herself as having champagne taste and a beer pocketbook. This is me, I guess, <laughs> said Florence yeah. mm-hmm. Calvin, one of the owners of Instant Replay in Harrison. And now with the recession, there are a lot of more people in that category, especially working women. They have to look smart on the job. Lately, we've been seeing a lot of young women who come in desperate for something to wear on an important job interview. So, you know, here we are. It's the 90s. We see that the mainstream sort of customer base for thrift stores has kind of gone in these other directions and so you're kind of like oh does that mean that like people stopped thrift shopping except for me and kim apparently no because secondhand specifically vintage and thrifting was getting its own huge shot in the arm in a big mainstream way during the 90s with young people and the young of heart being swept up into the alternative subculture thanks to mtv nirvana zine culture sassy magazine and so much more, apparently also because of church youth groups. I had no idea. Yes. <laughs> the irony of all of this alternative stuff being a subculture is that it was actually a massive cultural phenomenon that inspired multitudes. We're talking millions of people. It wasn't just some tiny niche interest, although I have this mortifying memory of being in 10th grade and my teacher, my economics teacher asking me what kind of music I listened to and he said um alternative and he and he thought I meant I was gay and <gasps> I like when then he, really? he was like oh I had no idea like you were you were gay and I got so embarrassed because everybody was like oh yeah we knew it and I was like no I mean like alternative music you know um anyway he was thinking alternative lifestyles I guess I don't know <laughs> that is a kind of crazy story i know i know like you're kind of outed in economics in, class in economics class yeah, yeah. Uh, uh anyway also during the 90s that that, that would have been an absolutely huge i know huge oh my deal yeah. and giant trigger i'm sure for oh, you for sure. whether or not you were in the closet right exactly exactly um but this it this whole like alternative it was like a tsunami a cultural tsunami yeah, because yeah, it was exactly. major label albums, alternative radio stations like that were like in like in the small town where I grew up, we had an alternative radio station in the county. Uh magazines, movies, you name it. Alternative and its subgenres of grunge, riot girl, kinder horror, rave culture, industrial music, skating, etc. They were just the counterpart of the mainstream culture rather than some tiny group of weirdos. Like this is not unlike the aughts where we have that like mainstream raunch culture and then we have the hipsters and it's like really this like 50 50 divide in in terms of trends right we're hopefully going to do an entire mini series on the 90s at some point this year i know many of you have asked for it and it certainly is a very fascinating time the more you dig into it so for this episode's purposes we're just going to talk about some of the cultural icons that made thrifting and vintage an aspirational lifestyle and then basically a way of life for many young people in the 90s. And not just a few people, like so many 
people. I think it's like as a teenager, I wanted to think that like I was one of only a few select special people who were into this stuff. But I am able to say as an adult, as much as it pains me, that so were many, many other people. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So first off was Sassy Magazine, which I was obsessed with. I don't know. Did you subscribe to this magazine, get a lot of contact with it? Not, Not as much as I would have liked to. I, it just started showing up at my house. And I think it's because I subscribed to so many other teenage magazines. And then I just like subscribed to this one. I probably asked my grandma for the 20 bucks or something. And many people, including myself, viewed Sassy as a cool little independent magazine. But the fact of the matter is that it was a huge mainstream teen publication being sent out to millions of households every year. Um, Maybe it flew a little too close to the sun, and that's why it ended so fast. But it, lots of people were seeing it. I could talk about Sassy for about 100 years, but we're, <laughs> we're just here to talk about secondhand clothing. And unlike its stodgy competitors, YM and 17, Sassy used a mixture of vintage, high-end, and accessible brands in its editorial. It was the only teen magazine that was doing it at that point. Although, for sure... At the very least, 17 followed afterwards. YM was still trying to get teenage girls to wear blazers. Sassy really reinforced some of the sort of like uniforms of the 90s alternative girl. These are all exactly what Kim and I were wearing. (laughs) There was the vintage ringer tee with flared jeans, right? A hundred percent. These jeans could be bought new or they could be used Levi's. The slip dress or polyester vintage dress with Doc Martens. The 70s polyester collared shirts and maxi skirt. The skirt would most likely be new, but the shirt could be vintage or it could come from Delia's. Vintage teddy bear coats paired with like homecoming dresses. A tee with a plaid skirt. Either could be vintage. There's a lot of lingerie dressing. Always footwear that wouldn't be considered like traditionally feminine, you know, unless it was like maybe a Mary Jane, but otherwise lots of boots and sneakers here. And Chloe Sevigny, another 90s icon, began as a model and then an intern at Sassy. She told Sassy in 1992, I never miss a tag sale or walk past a thrift shop without going in. You can always get good, cheap stuff that no one else will have. And I never throw anything away. You never know when you'll be in the mood to wear something. And oh my God, this look at her long hair. Oh, it's wild, right? We have some pictures mm-hmm. here. There's one point where I feel like she's wearing a bag on her head. I can't figure out what's happening here. It's not that maybe I wouldn't adopt that part of her aesthetic, but it looks just as relevant now. Um, you imagine seeing this and reading her words and seeing what she's wearing as like a teenager and you're like, I'm going to get into this too. And this is like so many tweens and teens of this era being like oh wow what i can i can afford to buy into this you know of course kurt and courtney as in kurt cobain and courtney love were basically the king and queen of thrifted clothing in the 90s setting everyone off in a search for the perfect vintage fuzzy cardigan you know that kurt would wear and the ideal dress with the peter pan collar to emulate courtney's kinder whore aesthetic Both were very vocal about their love and appreciation for thrifting as a treasure hunt of sorts. And I'm actually going to put some little audio clip in here from Kurt Cobain talking about why he loves thrifting. You know, they'll saying that you can't buy happiness. You think that's true? (laughs) 
Well, yeah, you can't buy happiness. I mean, that made me happy for a little while. <laughs> but, I mean, I was just probably almost just as happy with, you know, fine. I don't know. I used to, I, I look back on going to secondhand stores and stuff like that and finding a little treasure like that. And that actually meant more to me because it was it was more of a stab in the dark in a way, you know, because you didn't know if you're going to be able to afford it and you don't know what you're really looking for and when you find it, it's, it's more special to you rather than, you know, having a thousand dollars and going into a store like that and just buying the whole store, you know, it's, it's not as, you know, it's not as special. Courtney herself told Rolling Stone in 1994 in a particularly brutal interview called Courtney Love, My Life Without Kurt. Don't read it if you're feeling remotely emo today. Um, She talked about why she chose, among many other things in this article, why she chose the kinder whore aesthetic of dresses, barrettes, Mary Janes, and knee socks. She said, I would like to think in my heart of hearts that I'm changing some psychosexual aspects of rock music. Not that I'm so desirable. I didn't do the kinder whore thing because I thought I was so hot. When I see the look used to make one more appealing, when I see a 14-year-old girl in a fanzine acting like she's nine, it pisses me off. When I started it, it was a whatever happened to baby Jane thing. My angle was irony. Then again, my friend Joe pointed out this out to me ever since he'd known me. I'd had little baby teacups and blocks and toys. Maybe it had to do with never having patent leather shoes, never being allowed to wear a dress, never having gender-specific dolls. I absolutely insisted on taking ballet lessons when I was young, which caused a big, big fight in our house. Nothing was gender-specific. And I will just tell you that I wore all of the things that we talked about earlier, like all of the, those different looks, but my favorite... Yeah. Was to try to dress like Courtney Love. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I I do remember listening to, um, I I think it's You're Wrong About Podcast or some podcast. I don't know. Maybe it was even our podcast. We were talking about how Courtney Love's Kinder Horse style actually came out of her roommate who had adopted. Yes, who adopted it first. Yes, that's right. That's right. And they're like hate each other. Yeah. It was like this big trend yes. um, in that in that um, small niche group of people. Yes, that's Cat of Babes in Toyland, in case any of you were wondering. And oh, yeah, they like... They, so it, it, did it come from our podca- podcast? I don't think it did, but maybe it did. I don't know. I mean, I knew that, so Who there's knows? a chance I said it on here. <laughs> we, I mean, we, li- we live in a bubble and we probably listen and digest the yeah, same thing. Yeah, yeah. So. And I was disappointed to hear that they kind of like low-key still hate each other many, many years later. Um, but... Well, I mean, she didn't even give her any credit yeah, in this in yeah. this whole Rolling Stone article. I'd be pissed too. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I loved Babes in Toyland as well, and I actually thought they did a better job of this aesthetic. So there you go. Um, but there you go. definitely, like, this is a an aesthetic that was very based in vintage because, it, like, you couldn't find contemporary dresses that look like what they were wearing like you had to get to the thrift store and hope that you were short enough to fill it, fit into the smallest clothes the alternative subculture embraced thrifting and secondhand clothing as a means of differentiating itself from the mainstream with its malls full of gaps and limiteds like that's what kurt and courtney were doing that's to a certain extent what sassy was talking about although they still had ads for all of these stores in the pages But this whole subculture saw thrifting not only as an anti-capitalist statement, but also a way of curating a unique personal style. And when I was talking about this with Dustin yesterday, he told me, and this was an interesting perspective to hear, 
that the Beastie Boys were his gateway into thrifting, particularly during the Check Your Head era, when he saw a House of Style interview where they talked about their love of thrifting and collecting clothing much in the same way they collected records, always looking for something unique and special, even if those finds might be few and far between. And I was going to play the audio from that interview, which I watched in its full length twice. I am not going to subject you to all of that because it is so awkward that like it's painful <laughs> to watch. They're being like shitty young boys. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I get but, that. but I did like where they were talking about like we wear what we love and much in the same way, we're always looking for like that special record. That's how we feel about what we wear. And that's why we shop a lot of secondhand. That's why we thrift. I mean, that's actually, I was glad that you brought that up because I was going to mention it if you didn't, because I, I do remember that a lot of skater boys in our high school wore these huge oversized pants and you couldn't really get them mm -hmm. at the store. They'd have to go to the Goodwill to find the clothes and it kind of inspired a lot of, um, a, a lot of, a lot of people to go and um, thrift in at least in my high school. Oh yeah, same thing at my school. I also was really into, and I would find a lot of these at Rubens into old pajamas, like the full like button up like set with the top and the bottoms that were men's, and those were often really big for me. The pants would be huge, and so what I would do is I would get them and I would safety pin the waist as much as possible. It would take like 20 safety pins to get them to stay on my waist. And then they would be these like huge oversized like silky pants with then the pajama shirt. And I felt very cool. Like put that with like a awesome. lunchbox. That's a good look. Lunchbox purse. You got to look, right? Um, And you know, then they're like 25 cents or less because I don't even think they were a full pound. Um, But definitely a lot of the people I knew who were really into oversized pants, they started at the thrift store and like made them work from there. Yeah, you had to get like large oversized khakis, like <laughs> like like 10 sizes too big. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then hope that someone would help you straighten them out right? yes. so they wouldn't be just falling off of you um there's a mr porter essay about the beasties as fashion icons and it describes the check your head era as being kind of like the best period for them it says style wise these were the classic years ski hats workwear dead stock adidas and the occasional bit of thrift store flair such as the double knit irishman polo mr horowitz wears under a parka in the pass the mic video they also wore a lot of flannel aligning circumstantially with rock fashion trends of the moment mr yalk in the film says derisively to a reporter you must be talking about grunge <laughs> <laughs> and if you haven't picked up already, the alternative aesthetic of the 90s focused on the 60s and, and the 70s, particularly the 70s. But dance music was really leaning into the 1960s with Delight and Betty oh, Boo. Yes, a hundred percent. I could look at pictures of Lady Miss Care of Delight like all day long. She really focused on the psychedelic side of 60s fashion with Poochie prints and architectural John Fluvog shoes. And, oh, I had John Fluvog. Yeah, this was like 100%. the time, right? Uh -huh. And like no one was doing this. Like this is stunning to me even now. It's just so good. Um, and Betty Boo was not quite as big as Delight, but I definitely, every once in a while, will get her one song where she's like, Betty Boo, Betty Boo is gonna do. I don't know if you've ever had to dance to that at a school dance, but I will get that song stuck in my head sometimes. And she had a more like Mary Quant Avengers, Avengers kind of look mm -hmm. with a hint of outer space. I feel like 
Somehow she directly influences Jamiroquai, but I don't exactly know the connecting piece there. But it feels like Jamiroquai is the next step. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of looks like it. Right, It's like futuristic 60s, 90s. so good. It's so good. And on the screen, we had Parker Posey, the it girl of of indie film. I mean, she was in all the best movies, including Party Girl, Dave. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was great. That was really on point. (laughs) Dazed and Confused and House of Yes. I read this delightful New York Times profile of her from 1997, where which you should absolutely read. And it's a little confusing is that it kind of seems like it was written by her about herself in the third person, unless there's a typo in the byline. I can't figure it out. So you all read and get back to me and tell me if she wrote that or someone else did. But the whole article is about her wardrobe and it is so fun to read to just envision all the things she was wearing and owning like and thinking about, especially in the context of Party Girl, which... Man Repeller a few years ago called like the most important fashion film of all time or something. And I was like, you know, I might be on board there, or at least it's one of them right. for sure. So here's mm-hmm. what she says, or someone says in this article. As a result, the 28-year-old actress's entire wardrobe consists of costumes, clothes that inspired her own on-screen wardrobes, clothes inspired by the roles and clothes bought in the conviction that life is a dress-up ball. Each piece comes with a tale. Her tastes run to thrift store fabulous. That the origin of an orange velvet jacket got this from a woman on Portobello Road, she said, referring to the must-stop street in London for anyone who loves vintage clothing. She has blonde bangs and is in her 50s, I think. As she opened a giant wooden wardrobe, one of three crammed into her tiny bedroom, sartorial history tumbled out. Yellow chiffon, pink sequins, silk shirts and brocade, they filled the wardrobe like an overstuffed chair. The bottom was covered with shoes, blue Moroccan-style slippers, a pair of heels spray-painted bright blue, Chanel white shrimping boots, Italian leather slip-ons, and dozens of vintage pumps. A side closet was filled with pants, new pants, old pants, men's pants, army pants, pajama pants, Lots of Levi's. Just like reading about this was like delicious. Like I can't explain uh-huh. it, but I just really like pushed <laughs> some buttons for me. Um, so yeah, if you haven't seen Party Girl, I do feel that that film holds up and you should go give it a watch. On television, we had characters that weren't technically wearing secondhand clothing, at least as far as we know, but they embodied that secondhand chic look of mixing eras, prints, and patterns into a unique look. We had Blossom, and we had Clarissa of Clarissa Explains It All. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Their audiences were probably younger, but so basically, we end up with tweens, teens, and 20-somethings leaning into secondhand shopping because all of their heroes and icons are doing it, whether it's Courtney, Blossom, Parker, Drew, or anyone that could be found within the pages of Sassy. And so everyone wants that look, but maybe they can't get to a thrift store or they don't know where to begin. So don't worry. Retailers and designers are happy to help. We've got Delia's and Alloy definitely hitting on like the 70s shirts and the little dresses, you know. We've got Urban Outfitters where I personally worked in the store in in the West Village uh, in the late (laughs) 90s. Totally selling only copies of vintage clothes, like direct copies, but also having a huge, it was like 10, 12 feet long, all the way up floor to ceiling wall of secondhand Levi's that I 
my first shift there, they made me refold the whole thing and then refold it all again because I didn't do a good job. And I would spend a lot of time folding Levi's. That was downstairs. Upstairs, we had a whole wall of secondhand corduroys. And we did have like a mix of vintage and new, but most of the clothes were like just on point copies of old clothes. There was another store that was in my mall growing up called Merry-Go-Round that kind of leaned into more of the like Lady Miss Keir, Betty Boo kind of like 60s aesthetic along with other more club clothes. Um, Even department stores were like, hey, guess what? Sure, we have grunge clothes too. I included this ad for Kmart, which you may have seen before, Kim, but it makes me oh laugh every time hilarious. we see it. It's just like the circular that would come in the newspaper. And it's it's, it's embarrassing. Just embarrassing. It says, Get into grunge. And there are four people, <laughs> three of whom, you know, they got oh. a little they've got the grunge look. And then there's a man not wearing a shirt <laughs> with like wet hair or something. It's so uh. crazy. <laughs> I mean, and the woman on the left hand doesn't look like she's ever worn anything yeah, grunge she looks in her so entire uncomfortable. life. Um, it's so funny. We will definitely share this on Instagram. This ad makes me like laugh cry every time I see it. And it, what's interesting is that like these clothes were not that cheap. Like this baby doll dress is $29. The peasant style dress is $39. These are like more expensive than Shein. Um, but why did they put this topless guy with wet hair in this? I just don't understand <laughs> no. it. If anyone knows. And they, I don't think they, I wonder if they just weren't selling the jeans and they're like, well, we got to have a dude. <laughs> he or something like we he need looks some eye embarrassed. candy. So embarrassed. Um, anyway, like I said. <laughs> but he's not for sale, Amanda. There's nothing about him for sale in this. <laughs> so funny it's so weird the thing about grunge was it began as musicians artists and scenesters in the pacific northwest staying warm while having their own unique style they definitely never envisioned a day where a topless man would shamefully be in a kmart ad you know they were wearing like flannels and tees and long underwear and destroyed jeans vintage dresses boots sneakers like all easily thrifted and very authentic. And then here is Kmart. And they weren't the only one. Like, I remember J.C. Penney was really into this era, too. Like, really selling us this stuff. Anybody who was seeing the success that Delia's was having was like, we got to get into this, right? Everyone wants to buy in on a cultural moment. And everyone wanted to be a part of grunge and alternative music. And in that situation, when everybody wants to be a part of it, someone is going to pop up and make a new version of it. We saw that with raccoon coats. We saw that with 50s mm-hmm. clothes in the 80s. And now we were seeing it with 70s clothes and grunge in the 90s. So no conversation about secondhand and grunge and the alternative subculture and the influence that had on the fashion, the fashion industry as a whole is complete without talking about Marc Jacobs' disastrous, infamous, Genius, you decide. 1993 grunge collection for Perry Ellis, which, by the way, I think of Perry Ellis as like a grandpa brand. So the fact that this was for Perry Ellis, it's like golfing. Yeah, exactly. Like it's so wild. I'm going to tell you this: this whole collection was universally a joke, a disaster. uh, Pissed people off. There were a lot of strong feelings about it. But around between like 2010 and 2015, many years later, people started to be like, 
yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> and I think it might have been genius, right? So a lot, there's a lot of press in this century about this collection from 1993. And I'll tell you, I was looking at photos and I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd wear all this. Like, I like it. It looks really good. But I can see why it just enraged and inflamed people and made people make jokes about it. So yes, I can see that too. A hundred percent. There's a dazed piece that really goes into like what happened. You should go read it. There's a lot more that I'm going to share. It says, Mark Jacobs' spring-summer 1993 show for Perry Ellis is the stuff of fashion legend. After being hired as creative director for the sportswear brand in 1988, Jacobs politely did a few seasons of Easy American Elegance before paying homage to Seattle's grunge scene with the landmark collection, which was sent out on November 3rd, 1992. $2 secondhand flannel shirts were transformed into plaid printed silks. Lumberjack thermals were reimagined in cashmere. And Kurt Cobain's floral granny dress was turned into floaty chiffon worn with untied DMs or Duchess satin converse. Backstage, Sonic Youth were shooting their video for Sugar Cane, starring a very young Chloe Sevigny. It was a... Wait, backstage? Yes, backstage. This is like, man, talk about learning something new every day. They shot the video backstage for the show. I know, pretty wild. It was a seminal moment, not just because that video was being filmed there. From Christy Turlington opening the show as L7's Pretend We're Dead blasted out behind her to Kristen McMenemy and Kate Moss closing in matching beanies and layers of pastel knits and plaid. That's the way beautiful girls look today, Jacobs told the New York Times in February 1993. They look a little bit unconcerned about fashion. Women's Wear Daily hailed Jacobs as the guru of grunge, which I'm oh, sure went no. well, oh. right? <laughs> but the suits at Perialis didn't really get the finer points of bare midriffs and shirts tied haphazardly around the waist. Shortly after picking up the CFDA Designer of the Year Award in January 1993, Jacobs was dropped by Perry Ellis and production on the collection was killed. Do you think it even performed? Like if buyers even bought they it? They probably didn't. But the thing is, like yeah. if they redid this now, if they reissued it, it would sell out immediately. Mm-hmm. Right? It's so good. Jacobs, Mark Jacobs, that is, actually sent a box of the collection to Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love because he admired them so much. And both were just horrified. In 2010, Courtney told Women's Wear Daily, do you know what we did with it? We burned it. We were Uh punkers. We don't do that kind of thing. Jacobs was simultaneously laughed at and criticized, but he stands by that collection. In 2011, he said, there was so much more to it than making plaid shirts and flowing silk dresses. It wasn't about that. It was about a sensibility and also about a dismissal of everything that one was told was beautiful, correct, glamorous, and sexy. I loved that it represented a newness. I think that's how people dress now. I think that moment hasn't passed. It's morphed into different things, but it really hasn't passed. I did so much other reading about this. Like I said, in 2000, 2015, 2010, in that era, people were like, oh, shit, we might have been wrong. That was like the best collection that's ever come out. Um, But I... As I did all this reading, and, you know, like, in this century, lots of people reached out to talk to him. There were interviews from back then, too. I can say, like, when I read about this in the 90s, I was like, what an asshole. 
co-opting our culture and turning into like silk sneakers and stuff like this. But I realize now that he wasn't looking to cash in on grunge. He was reflecting a particular era and a new approach to beauty and fashion. Like this was really genuine for him and him really trying to make a leap forward. More and more fashion people, like I said, were coming around to that show and realizing that it may have been a stroke of genius. Misunderstood at the time, but now fully more relevant in this century. There's another great piece from The Cut called Changing My Mind About Marc Jacobs' Grunge Collection. You should all go read it. It also includes a lot of some of the best looks from that show. It explains how the grunge show wasn't the first time people were appalled by a collection that pulled from a change, like a big cultural change in personal style and women's ownership of what they wore. You can read the article for more detail, but they cite a YSL show in the 70s as being like another example of that. And in this article, Jacobs remembered, I was so pleased with that show. And because it did get a lot of attention and it did look younger and fresher, I said, I'm going to do what I feel is right. And that's how grunge started. I joked about it at the time, but I had designing diarrhea. I just couldn't stop. The ideas came from everywhere, whether it was Corinne's pictures or David Sims or Jurgen Tellers or meeting Helena Christensen for the first time, seeing her in a shawl over a nightgown with a pair of Birkenstocks, or it was my friend Ellen running around in pajamas and Converse with a bra. I was like, oh my God, this is all pointing to the same thing. By the mid 90s, other designers, notably Muccia Prada, were questioning notions of beauty in new and unsettling ways, and going without makeup fit with the decade's minimalist fashion. But at the time, Jacob thinks now, and in the environment of Seventh Avenue, in, in the environment of Seventh Avenue, grunge exposed fear. That was the main reason, he said, people turned the show into a punching bag. I'll use Kate Moss as an example, he said. A woman buying designer clothes can't go to go to a store and put on a slip with Converse sneakers and have dirty hair and no makeup. A woman of a certain fashion education can't achieve Kate's look. It went against everything that one could aspire to. I mean, you could go to a beauty parlor and look like Joan Collins, or you could say, I want to look like Cindy Crawford or have my hair cut like Linda Evangelista. But you couldn't go into a shop and say, I want a child's Victorian dress that looks torn. I think that's where the fear comes from. I think it's safe to say that it also comes from new things of which fashion writers are oddly intemperate. It's always so easy to look at the next thing and be part of the past thing, said Jacobs, and say, that doesn't work. It doesn't tick our boxes. So what do you think of it? Do you think that the world just wasn't ready for it, that it just wasn't like something the industry can make a lot of money off of? Or was it just so cheesy? Oh, it's complicated, right? It's complicated. It feels, I mean, because, you know, it wasn't like something that that he kind of slid into. It's something that he just dropped on everyone. And the fact <laughs> that it was tied to Perry Ellis, which is like a giant that American sports company. I know. I, it makes a lot of sense. For some reason, I forgot that it was a Perry Me Ellis too. collection. I thought it was a Jacobs collection. Yes. And it makes so much more sense yes. as like a personal taste level there. But once you attach Perry Ellis to it, it feels like it's like a performative um, anti-classist. I don't know. It just, it seems... It's complicated. It's co- it's complicated. I think that he maybe had good intentions. But when you really look at it, it kind of doesn't add up, right? Like, I mean, it's a p- good PR move for him. 
I mean, it made him blow up. Definitely. I mean, we're still talking about it. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and he got his own line eventually, basically. Like, yeah. if you're worried about Mark Jacobs, because that name doesn't sound familiar yeah, right. to you, I believe he went on to do mm-hmm. to Louis Vuitton next, and then eventually had his own line for a long time that we just constantly copied at Urban Outfitters every year. Um, I, I do have something to add, though, about the 90s that I do remember in regards okay. to buying vintage fashion and the, the, the whole yeah. trend, which was eBay. I would go on eBay. Oh, yeah. And um, they would, this was kind of like the beginning of like the eBay, it was the, the late 90s, I guess. And um, there would be these little stores, you could follow the stores, and they mm-hmm. all typed with the upper ca- uppercase, lowercase, like kind of <laughs> odd like um you know what i'm talking about yeah no i do know what you're and talking like, about yeah <laughs> like delia's yes and I, yes and i was i would i would pretty much only shop from them if they had the uppercase lowercase thing going on because it meant that they knew what they were doing um and yeah i, I love to troll ebay and kind of just explore what was on there Oh my God, me too. We'll definitely talk about eBay more in the next episode, but like I Mm -hmm. was an early adopter of eBay also. And you could find so much cool stuff because, especially in the late 90s, there still weren't that many people shopping there. Yeah. And so, yeah, it would be more expensive than like going and buying it at like the Goodwill, but it was still really affordable. And you like, you would find people that you liked and follow them Mm -hmm. and just only look at their auctions, basically. It was so good. And when I was reading about the Beastie Boys, they talked about how they also in the late 90s got really into shopping on eBay. Oh, and would, that's we, amazing. I yeah, I know. And I mean, Dustin's the same way. We talk about it all the time, like our love of eBay. I remember back then you'd have to like, because there wasn't PayPal, you'd have to like mail a money order or a check yes. to pay for your yes, stuff. Yes, yes. It would take so long uh-huh. to get what you want. Like a month mm-hmm. <laughs> because you'd have to, okay, now I won. Now I have to go to the bank and get the money order. Now I got to mail it. Then they have to deposit it. Then they have to send it to me. Imagine if people had to wait like that now. It just wouldn't, it's like a wild idea to anyone that they would have to, a money order. Yeah, I mean, come exactly. on. A money order. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely when we get in, in next week's episode, we're going to talk about this century. And like, this is when. The internet intersects with secondhand fashion, and a lot of people have a lot of mixed opinions about it. I was talking to another friend the other day, and I was like, you know, in the early aughts, it was very common to be out drinking with a bunch of your hipster friends and someone to be like, fucking eBay is ruining thrifting, right? (laughs) Because, like, everybody just goes there and gets stuff that sells it on eBay, and it's like, oh, man, my friend... Wait, you just wait. There's more coming, you know? Um, But definitely that was like a popular conversation topic of the era. Um, Yeah, I guess that's all we really have on the 90s. We're going to pick up next week as we approach the end of of that century and get into this century. Uh, Things are going to get weirder. Things are going to get bigger. Uh, People are going to get even more feelings about it. But I would say that it's not like more people are shopping secondhand now than they were in, say, the 80s or even the 90s. It's just in a different way. 
I know you have one more thing you would like to tell everybody, Kim, before we call at the end for this week. Yes. Uh, thank you for listening all the way through to this. And we, we're excited to keep going on. But I do want to remind everyone that we have a tip jar available on our Instagram uh, profile. It's at underscore the underscore department. Um, so if you got a couple dollars to give, you know, we highly encourage it. Um, you know, we don't run ads or anything. And um, we're kind of just doing this because we enjoy talking about trends and researching trends. So um, if you have a couple dollars, please throw them in the tip jar. Seriously, because in addition to, you know, doing a crazy amount of work for every episode, this week's episode was a 32-page term paper written by me. (laughs) Uh, We also have expenses attached to creating the podcast and website hosting and podcast episode hosting. And like, as I've said before, you start a podcast and you think you're just going to throw it up on the internet and it'll be free. And it turns out, oh no, there are many many companies out there who are happy to take your money to allow you to have a podcast. So we don't expect you to pay us for our 32-page term papers, but if you wanted to ship in towards the other expenses, that would be amazing, and we would very much appreciate it. All right, that's all we have this week. I'd love to hear from all of you what you think of the Mark Jacobs show. Uh, I still can't believe that anyone thought it would be a good idea to make like cashmere thermals and silk flannels, but I will say the show looks good. It does sound cozy. It, quite honestly, I mean, like it's, would it not is, kick that out of bed. Uh, definitely not. But it is so on the opposite end of the spectrum of what grunge was that it it is a it's pretty wild. You know, um, I see why people got upset, mm-hmm. but I also will say the outfits were really good. <laughs> Um, All right. Well, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.